Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, just like with the Robert Kaplinsky episode, I felt the need to record an introduction before the actual introduction to this podcast that I originally recorded. You see, hopefully you're about to enjoy a conversation with the absolutely wonderful Mark Healy. But we recorded this before school closures, before lockdown, and to be honest with you, uh, before certainly I was aware of the severity of of the COVID-19 outbreak. So when you listen to this interview, I'm pretty sure we make zero reference to it whatsoever. Indeed, I'm speaking to Mark whilst he's sat um, in his school office at the end of a busy school day, which which sounds like a, a different world. So I just wanted to, once again, just put this episode into context. If, if you think it's a bit weird that we don't mention anything whatsoever about school closures, teaching from home, online learning and stuff, that's the reason why. Hopefully it'll provide a nice little antidote because that's, as ever, all that's dominating the news at the moment. Um, I just wanted to use this introduction just to mention a couple of other things, if if that's all right as well. Um, Regular podcast listeners may have noticed there's been a slight decrease in the frequency of episodes that I've been putting out over the last four weeks or so. Uh, There's been two reasons for that. Firstly, um, if you checked out my Teaching From Home series, um, I went a bit crazy in terms of the number of episodes there. I put 11 out in the space of about three weeks. And that took a toll. It took a toll on me mentally, but also on my podcast hosting plan, which uh, I kind of blew it for the for the foreseeable future. Um, but um, what I wanted to say is, if you haven't listened to those Teaching From Home episodes, or if you thought to yourself, well, actually, that, that context isn't isn't the same for me because I, I don't teach in, for example, an independent school or in a, in a state school, depending on where the guest was from. I'd recommend if you've got a bit of spare time, you're looking for something to listen to, just go back and check some of those episodes out because even though the focus is on teaching from home, we talk about so much more. There's some wonderful insights just on pedagogy in general, on managing workload. Um, I got to speak to guests who I've been wanting to speak to for a while. Uh, Jules Dolby is a really good example of this. I've wanted Jules on the show for ages to talk to her about her uh, SEN uh, specialism. And of course, we spoke about the the, the challenges of, of uh, teaching students with um, with special educational needs in this challenging time that we currently find ourselves in. But also, we talked more in general um, about that once once students go back to school, and it was a real eye opener for me. So. Have a quick look if you're looking if you're looking for a bit more of, of my annoying voice, which uh, very few people are. Go back and have a look at those teaching from home um, eleven episodes, and just just have a read of the show descriptions because I try to point out the different avenues that that we go down. So that's one reason there's been um, a bit of a break in recording of the podcast. The other reason is you may have noticed that I've been um, doing some online courses. Um, I'm, get, I'm really getting into these now. Uh, basically, at this time of year when I'm recording this intro, June, I should be um, in the midst of conference season. And my calendar's always fully booked, um, kind of the end of May, throughout June and into the start of July. Because once exams start to finish, schools are able to get together with less cover work implications, conferences, inset days and so on. But of course, all those have been cancelled. So I've had lots of requests from schools about, is there anything I can do about that? And I think, as I mentioned at the start of the Robert Kaplinsky episode, I didn't want to go down the line of live webinars because, for me, they're almost like a poor version of 
in-person events because you always you get technical difficulties you get no response from the audience it's it's a very passive it has the potential to be a passive experience um, I, I i believe anyway whereas what i've tried to do with these online courses is make it an advantageous thing so not try and replicate what i'm doing in person but enhance it so what those of you who've had a look at these online courses will know that for example in the uh, in the intelligent practice one there's a hundred videos a hundred short videos that each kind of make one key point or set up an exercise or something like that so you, you watch the video and then there's something to do either a link to research a link to an activity a link to another website and then there's something to reflect on and then you watch another video so what, what i try and do with these online courses is do things that i simply can't do in person and that certainly go into more depth these um these were based on my original one day workshops but there is not a chance i'll be able to fit this kind of stuff um, into a one day workshop because i've been able to go really deep and and go into areas that i, I simply don't have time to do when i'm when i'm in um, in in-person events but also, there's um, the, the format means it's really flexible. Flexible for, for you as teachers to watch in your own time and at any time that you want. Um, in short chunks, if you want, five minutes here, ten minutes there. Um, you can watch them, obviously, wherever you want. Uh, at, at the current time, that may well be at home, but hopefully in the future it may be... Um, doing it together with a colleague uh, you can revisit the videos as many times as you want you will have access to these uh, these course materials forever so hopefully it's um it's doing something better than i would be able to do um on the in-person events now obviously you miss out on the collaboration certainly at this particular moment in time there's, there's something special about having you know 20 teachers 50 teachers 100 teachers together or, and people around tables discussing things arguing things but you can replicate that um, while schools are closed. You can do that, just set up um, a Zoom call or, or a chat on Skype or something like that. And hopefully once things go back to some kind of normality, if you've um, if you're taken the course alongside another teacher, you can get together whenever you've reached a certain point and discuss it and so on. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy how they've, they've come out, if I'm honest. I know that sounds dead cocky. But if you haven't had a chance, at the time of recording, there are five of my big courses uh, live. That's on works examples. Um, making the most of problem solving, um, retrieval, intelligent practice and formative assessment. And also I've released a load of free material as well. And um, in particular, my four topic in depth sessions that I've done with the wonderful Joe Morgan. I'll put a link to how to get to these in the show notes. Uh, but the address, if you wanted to just get that straight away now, is craig.barton at podia, that's P-O-D-I-A dot com. And you can access um, all those materials there. So um, I've got another two weeks of recording those to do. I want to put out, I want to get up to seven kind of big chunky courses and a few more free ones. And then once that period's over, my focus will return um, in terms of my spare time to the to more podcast episodes. I'm also going to do a maths conf, uh, the t conference takeaway special with Joe Morgan um, next weekend um, as I'm recording this now. So you'll get a fresh episode fairly soon as well. And then hopefully some uh, big long form episodes coming up um, in the near future. I'm also planning, I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea, some kind of like the teaching from home series, but not quite as intense as that. But around September time when schools go back, about what schools are doing, how they're coping with it. Now, nobody knows what September is going to look like in terms of uh, gatherings and schools and so on and so forth. 
But my instinct is, as many people's instinct is, there's going to be a lot of challenges. I'd be very surprised if there's 30 kids in a class and, and life goes back to what, what we once knew. So I thought it might be a good idea to get different teachers' views on what and, and different schools' approaches to what they're doing. Working title of this series is What the Hell Are We Going to Do? Something like that. Um, and I'll be kind of scouting around on Twitter to, to get guests if, if schools have particularly innovative ideas or, or challenges that they just want to share. Because the Teaching Room Home got such a good response, um, I'm thinking of doing something similar. So, so watch out, watch out for that one. And if you're feeling kind of confused and unsupported around about September, I think everybody is. And hopefully um, this will help with something like that. Anyway, back to today's episode. So you're about to hear from me recording this. Again, it's bizarre, even though it was just a few months ago. Um, I sound so naive in, in, in what I'm kind of talking about in this introduction. Uh, with the wonderful Mark Healy. Now, I, as you'll hear, I originally intended to get Mark on to speak about my favourite subject to talk about, which is sleep. And that's certainly something that, <laughs> that I've been obsessed with for years and, and I have has really come to the forefront over the last couple of months or so because in lockdown, like many people, People, I'm, I'm struggling with my sleep and also Isaac our, our little boy has seemed to have lost the ability to sleep uh, during the night so for example last night uh, he decided to wake up at midnight and then he was wriggling around in our bed for about 45 minutes and then he wanted just to go downstairs uh, just for two or three hours and he was wide awake so um, anything that can improve my sleep I am always on the lookout for so as often happens on this podcast, we got talking about so much other stuff. We never got round to sleep. Um, so Mark's going to come back on the show and we're going to do a sleep special because sleep's always important, but particularly at this time and maybe going back into September when anxieties will be rising, both in terms of teachers and students, I think sleep will be even more important. So fear not, no sleep in this one, but we'll be back onto that as well. Anyway, um, as ever, thank you for listening to, to these podcasts. Check out the courses and you're about to hear uh, a very young, a very naive Craig Barton speaking from a few months ago. I hope you enjoy this one. I hope you are taking care of yourselves and your family and your friends. Uh, we'll get through this. Uh, God knows when. But um, yeah, just take care of yourselves. Stay safe and I'll speak to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs> episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Mark Healy. Mark is a teacher of psychology and is also a deputy head teacher up in sunny Scotland. He has a wide range of teaching experiences in the UAE and Hong Kong and in what we Englanders call pupil referral units. Now, I first got to know Mark when I was lucky enough to see him give a talk about sleep at Research Ed Blackpool a few years ago. Now, you may have heard me talk about that on my podcast takeaway from that, uh, from that conference, and I've been a huge fan of Mark ever since. I've also been lucky enough to visit his school in Scotland a couple of times to work with his team and see some of the wonderful things that are going on there. Now, the original plan was to interview Mark in one episode, but as is often the case on this show, we simply had too much to talk about. So I'm going to put this episode out as part one and get Mark back on the show as soon as possible to talk about three huge areas of interest to me, sleep, growth mindset and behaviour. 
But I'll tell you what, fear not, because this conversation you're about to hear is still jam-packed full of gems. Indeed, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and plenty more besides. First off, my math speed dating questions once again may lead to me being arrested under the Trades Descriptions Act as diversions and tangents mean they take about 40 minutes to get through, but I hope you agree it's worth it. And then we discuss not one, but two of Mark's favourite failures. There's a great story about a lesson Mark taught and then something for senior leaders to reflect upon. Next up, we move into the realms of cognitive science and cognitive psychology. What on earth is the difference between those two? And indeed, does it matter? Um, is the increased awareness of teachers of these two areas a good thing? What are some of the main issues Mark sees uh, with teachers' perception of cognitive science and cognitive psychology? And what are some of the key takeaways that Mark thinks teachers should be thinking about? Now, if you've heard Mark speak before, you'll know this, but and if you don't, you're about to find out. Mark is an incredibly engaging speaker and a wonderful person to chat to. I loved this conversation and I cannot wait for part two. Um, one big old plug before we start. My second book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, is out now. It is my potentially controversial look at how to use carefully varied sequences of questions and examples in the classroom to enable our students to think mathematically. The book also features an epic 40,000 word chapter on how the core ideas from my first book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, have developed in the two years since the book's release. Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain is available from all good and all evil bookstores. And I'll tell you what, if you have bought the book, first off, thank you so much. If you've read it, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you liked it, and you have time if you could leave a quick review on Amazon or wherever you got the, wherever you got the book from that would mean the world to me I'm really sorry to, to, to have to ask but it's one of those things it really just the way Amazon algorithm works it really helps push the book up there and increase awareness of it so if you could do that that'd be great if you thought the book was a load of rubbish perhaps keep the review to yourself but anyway uh, without further ado let me introduce Mark Healy now as a warning and also a bit of a teaser if you have young children listening Mark uses a word that rhymes with wish and starts with a p it's one of those funny scottish words and um, that is one of many times i laughed out loud during our chat i really hope you enjoy this one i know you will and as ever i'll see you on the other side Okay, Mark, so we start on the podcast as we always do uh, with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, see, before I get to my favourite number, my favourite math teacher to talk to is a maths fellow at the University of Loughborough. So it's lovely to get the opportunity to speak to a math fellow at the University of Loughborough. Thank you well, well, yeah, thank you for getting that in nice and early. Good. <laughs> nice. One. All right. Back to the questions. Uh, favourite number and why? <laughs> oh, I'd say that before you do. Um, okay, I think three because it's, it's as cheesy as I can make it because that's the number of children that I have. Very but because nice. it's number three, that means I'm allowed three. So my next favourite number is 55 because that's when I hope to retire. <laughs> um and my next favourite number is four, because that's the psychology of teamwork that we know in terms of numbers and threshold can work well. Um, so there you go. Three is my number, and then three three after that. Well, what do you mean by that last point, Mark, about, about four? Can you just expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, so this kind of emanated out of quite an informal dialogue with one of my friends who is a cognitive neuroscientist at UCL and he was working with the military um, and they were telling him about if they were doing any kind of um, teamwork or special operations work or any any operation that involved working in teams, they wouldn't they wouldn't go beyond teams of four normally because they pretty much know that in terms of efficiency, in terms of role delineation, in terms of successfulness, four is that threshold where groupthink doesn't outweigh, but you get the opportunity for people to have that um, input that is meaningful. Um, so sometimes. Sometimes we've got a lot to learn from the military and they're way far in advance of academic writings. So that's, yeah, that's, in, that's interesting. And, and you're, are you, um, when you teach, you take that into the classroom, are you, are you pretty happy that four's the kind of max number that you'll allow kids to work together in? Or, or are, there, are there any exceptions to that? I would probably, I mean, I, um, I am going to hold my hand up with a wonderful world of confirmation bias and say <laughs> I'm not the greatest fan of group work or cooperative learning. Um, so I tend to do pairs and that means if I'm doing group work on fours, I can just get two people to turn around and I've automatically got my fours set up really quickly. That does not happen often i would tend to work in pairs and if i do go into group work fours would be my absolute limit can i just uh, the danger of the kind of this, these math speed dating questions that dominate in our conversation just one more uh, on this mark um yeah. early on in my career i was obsessed with group work i used to do it all the time i used to assume it was just the right way to teach because anytime i was observed that was what i was told um courses were full of group work it was the way forward and um, i reached that conclusion too um that that paired work is is the optimum for me and um, did you go down a similar journey had you, had you experimented with group work and found it just didn't work or was this a conclusion that you reached before experimentation? No, I think it was pretty much similar to what you said. Um, we had, we had um, an authority level. We had spent um, a lot of time and money um, bringing um, two, I, I actually don't remember their names, but I think they were following the Kagan sort of strategies um, for group work. We brought them over from um, Canada and everybody was, everybody in the authority was through a rolling programme where uh, asked um, to do five full days in cooperative learning. Um, and we did this, and it, uh, it was really good. Some of it was really good, some of it I liked, some of it I thought that just won't work for me. And I think that's okay in any form of um, professional development that you exert your professional judgment accrues wisdom, local context, uh, and then try and assimilate how that might work or might not work in your class. And, and, and I'm okay with that level of autonomy. I know what you've outlined is not that level of autonomy because um, ill-informed senior leaders see it as a prescriptive orthodoxy that everybody must implement, um, and that's the danger of these things. Um, so I, I tried it, and I just thought, am I not very good at this because I'm not getting much at this? And it probably was that, to be fair. Um, and then I spoke to other staff, and I've said, and they said, look, we just find it a recipe for no matter delineating roles and somebody's a timer and somebody's a reporter and somebody feedbacks. People people will rely on those people who they feel have got the answers and the other people will just take that little step back and say to yourself, you do the work and I'm quite happy to have a chill pill for a couple of minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there, is, there is the role of you as a teacher if that's happening and saying, well, why are you not aware that's happening? 
Um, so you kind of got that what I call lighthousing when you do behaviour management with and I'm a student regent in our school so we would I work with our NQTs and I say one of the things I need you to think about is lighthousing in the class and it's that idea of 360 all the time walking around the periphery of the room as much as you can and getting an idea of what's happening in every area even if you're focused attention on one group you've got that peripheral vision of what's happening in another group um, and even even with that and even with experience, I just didn't feel it was the most effective way that I could either get across what I wanted to get across or what I wanted them to retain over a longer period of time. And I'm not reducing learning to long-term memory, but it just socially, I don't think it... It ticked the boxes of teamwork. I don't think it ticked... The, the boxes of inhibitory control, problem solving, critical inquiry. I just, for me, it didn't. So I'm happy to accede to that. That was my poor practice. Um, but I'm happy to, to say that I feel more comfortable doing group work in, in, in pairs or even fours maximum, but not beyond that. Got it. Fantastic. And what's, what's nice there is as a professional um, interviewee here, Mark, you've, you've teased some of the things we're going to be talking about either in part one or part two in terms of behavior, novice teachers and so on and so forth. So you, you've hooked the listeners in very, very nicely there. Um, that was a strategy. I used to work <laughs> Mark. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Uh, question number two, then back to speed dating. What, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student? I was very fortunate, I have to say, that I had fabulous maths teachers at, at secondary school, um, and I really liked them all. Um, I'm not necessarily saying I was good at maths. Um, I'm not saying I had a maths anxiety of the Joe Bowler type, but what I would say is I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I did our, our qualifications in Scotland, as you know, are called Scottish Hires. I did manage to get my Scottish higher in maths pretty easily. So for me, the best, the, the most fascinating for me, and I'll tell you why, was because my teacher, Mr. Scullion, said to me, if you understand this, you can explain everything in the world. And I thought, wow, that's a fantastic segue into me wanting to learn. And he was talking about cal calculus and, and the variation and rate of change or something. He said, do you understand this? You can explain anything. Um, and... I, I just loved it. Um, I found it hard. Um, but it was really, really enjoyable. Um, I'm not quite sure how it explains why Celtic lost last night, but <laughs> it, <laughs> it, um, it certainly it certainly was my little hook into trying to understand why not just maths was important, but then when you start to think about calculus and you start to get into physics, and it, it, was, it was brilliant. I loved it. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Superb. And final speed dating question, Mark. Um, if you weren't a teacher, what, what job would you like to do? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I've, I've kind of actually teased that out in myself uh, at this stage of my career, or this is kind of going towards year 30 of of teaching. Um, I'm not sure if the, the Botox or the filler conceals that very well, but... <laughs> um, I think God's already taken I think that's taken, isn't it? Tom Bennett's got that one, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Tom Bennett's got that one sewn up. So um, I, I, I would love to be, for a whole variety of reasons, a performance coach or an advisor to elite or super elite teams. I'm kind of going to tell you, kind of tell you why. I think everything that they do has not not a direct transfer 
but a lovely critical lens into their practice where we can turn around and say, what makes an NFL team so wonderful in terms of what they do in the pitch? What do they do in training? What's their backup in terms of their supports, their kinesiology, their biomechanics, their strength and conditioning, their sports psychology, their morals, their values? How does that link to what we do in schools? How did how did the marginal gain stuff of you British cycling link to to what we do in schools? How how does the life of a super elite athlete link to what we do in schools? Because I'm not there's no direct transfer, but I do think there's parallels when you look at performance. I'm not reducing learning to performance. I'm certainly not reducing education to performance. But let's be honest, Craig, we do live in a world of accountability and, and s- certain levels of performativity uh, measures, uh, not least of which is exams. Um, and if we're looking at how do you increase performance, then I think there's a lot to learn from those domains. You you, you, you could possibly say to me, well, experimentally, you know, Clive Woodward, who was so successful with English rugby, didn't transfer so well into football when he went down to Southampton. As I, I think he was director of sport, and I don't know his exact title. So there is the opportunity to say, look, domain knowledge is hugely important, but I also think there's the opportunity to learn from other other disciplines. Um, I mean, I have to tell you, I would get every single teacher. And my school to watch free solo. I don't know oh, if you yes, watch. I have. I see. I saw it on, on the plane. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But see, see if you look at Alex Honnold, who who was who was doing the vertical climb of El Capitan, and the fact that he was doing it without a rope. First of all, you think to yourself, why? <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, I think to myself, wow, that is incredible. That uh, for me. I have to say, a sub two hour marathon is fantastic, Craig. Uh, genuinely, it's fantastic. What what that guy did in terms of that free solo climb was one of the greatest human achievements I have ever seen. And I'm not traducing how, how important other things were. But if you look at what he did and you look at the aspects of his expertise, he he... No, no doubt, deliberate practice. Massive amounts of deliberate practice, which I came came across in the documentary. We know that's really important without getting into the kind of erroneous ten thousand hours. But we know that deliberate practice with expert feedback and corrective feedback, mm. so that the deliberate practice then evolves in a cyclic way to becoming better than what it was previously. That in itself is hugely important and that's kind of things that we would do to kids in the class in the sense of well there's a task and here's my feedback and I would expect you to get better uh, and I would and that's definitely one one thing that we, you could extrapolate from his journey in terms of climbing El Capitan without ropes um, you could also look at the idea that this has corrective feedback trial and error. There was one part he couldn't do, but he kept on doing it, he kept on doing it, he kept on doing it, he kept on doing it until it became intuitive. So then you've got your systems one, system system two stuff, your expert novice stuff. But you've also got your grit stuff, and we'll talk about that later, but it was the idea that something was really, really hard, I'm not going to give up. And I don't know if you have this experience with, with pupils in maths, Craig, but if they get to a point in the syllabus where something is really tough, the wee heads can go down really quickly. Yes. Um, and even with your 
your kind of kids who find maths that little bit more simple, when you take them into GCSE and then into A-level and higher or even that international baccalaureate stuff, those kids can quickly turn around and say, I passed GCSE at A-star, but I'm finding the, the A-level real hard. What, I, I, is there any way that I can drop this and think about another subject? And that, that wonderful example of him, complete perseverance, deliberate practice, refining, that's so crucial to what we do in the class in terms of feedback. And that's why when you leave school, look look at teachers when they leave school on a Friday afternoon, Craig. See if they bounce out the door at three o'clock and they actually bounce out the door like an atomic bomb and you just think to yourself, wow, you've, you've got a drink problem, pal, but enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your gin after work. But if they're doing that and you know that they've worked their backside off, then fair play, go and enjoy your catharsis and have a weekend. See if they're bouncing down there and you think to yourself, how can you have that energy on a Friday afternoon? What are you doing during the rest of your periods if that's happening? Because I genuinely believe that if you're teaching really well and really hard, you are exhausted on a Friday. And part of that is the feedback that you give so consistently to every kid in your class. I once had a teacher who turned around and said to me, if you haven't given kids one bit of feedback on a personal level, your lesson's a fail. And that's every lesson. And that was his, that was his benchmark. Um, high benchmark. Uh, and we have our own contentions as to whether or not that's sustainable. Do you feel as a math teacher you can do that? Um, I, I, I think so, as long as you're not defining it so narrowly that it's got to be written feedback and so on and so forth and all the stuff that it often gets kind of bundled into. Um, but I t- I'll say one thing I just wanted to ask you on that, Mark. Um, yeah. Because we know that one of, well, the two biggest drivers why teachers leave our profession in droves are, are workload and, and behaviour. What, what do you say to like pe- people listening who think, I don't want a job where I'm just knackered the whole time? Because obviously you're knackered in school and you go home and you're knackered and you can't commit to your relationship, your family, and, and your whole life becomes subsumed by, by work. Is it, is it possible to, to teach well without being knackered? That, that, honestly, that's a brilliant question. I would say it's like anything in the world that you have to have a balance. And I know that sounds like a cop-out and it seems like this wonderful world of politically correct answer and BBC breakfast answer. But it, it, for me, there is a balance and I think you actually have to get to a point where when I'm in the class and I'm teaching, I'm giving my all. Genuinely, I'm giving my all and I expect that from all my teachers and I expect all teachers to do that. Um I'm not saying that when they leave on a Friday, I want them to to be a sheer point of exhaustion. I'm saying to them, I think they have to be disciplined to the point and have a systems understanding. And that includes SLT and middle leaders um, and, and possibly even kids and parents. Because, you know, you, 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 get a, you, get, you give a homework assignment and kids will come in the next day and go, you marked that yet? And you go, uh, aces one night, uh, <laughs> no. I'm allowed to breathe, I'm allowed to eat, I'm allowed to walk the dog, and I'm allowed to watch the TV. But you have to kind of educate people that I think you you create this in their minds, this threshold of, I'm not going to put put it down into hours and say like 45 hours, 50 hours, 40 hours. Um, You know, a 35 hour a week, I think you and I would both agree, is is fairly rare for working teachers, Mm. be an average. Um, I think you, you'd have to say to them, and I, and I say this to other people, is you set your threshold of whatever you think is appropriate, one and a half, two hours, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and you say to yourself, 
I can't do any more at night and I'm not doing any more at night. And I think you have to have that balance at the weekend. The difficulty with that is, and that sounds dead simplistic, the difficulty with that is that some people, if they don't work three or four hours per night, it precipitates stress. Yes. And it impacts on what they do during the day in terms of the performance in the classroom. But I'll invert the question and I'll say to you, how did we ever get to a point in a system or a profession which are teaching that would um, project itself as uh, a profession where the level and the intensity, the acceleration and the rhythm of work out of school is almost regarded as an expectation on top of what happens in school for the system to survive? How did we ever get to that stage of acceptance? I know. I know it's, it's terrible. And I think, well, my, my answer, and it's an overly, overly simplistic one, it goes back to what you said about feedback. It's it's common sense that for, for kids to get better, they need they need feedback and guidance by, by their teacher. But then that then became, well, we need to evidence that. So we need to do it in in terms of marking. Then it's marking became double marking, triple marking, yeah. evidence everything down. And it's it's just gone out of control. Um, and yeah, even I, this is my 15th year of teaching. So I've only been teaching half as half as much as you but I, i've noticed it myself in these last what five or six years it's the workload has just absolutely gone through the roof and it's it's all kind of tied around this notion of feedback and it's this idea that if you're not doing this if you're not evidencing this you're doing the kids a disservice so what 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 kind of you know right-minded teacher is going to say well i'm, I'm not doing it and it, it's it's incredibly difficult isn't it what, what, what do you put it down to I, th I think you're absolutely right what you've said. I think there's there's the most definitely an intensification um, and an acceleration of workload over the last five years. Um, in my role as a deputy head teacher, what I do now is not the same as what I even did five years ago, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, at a very mundane level, I have absolutely no doubt that austerity and cuts mm, yes. on that. People still expect the same level of performance and service with less resources um, and I think teachers are so conscientious on the whole that they they internalise the fact that then they have to step up to a point to redress that gap. Um, I do also think that it's a, a case of the kind of BSing. I don't know if, you, if you've read The Beautiful Risk of Education. No, I haven't. Biester's work where he would talk about this accountability and performativity and he calls it data valence. The idea, this kind of almost Orwellian overture of data valence where schools are not seen as communities per se, but it's almost seen as algorithms and data sheets and spreadsheets, which create a narrative about how good or how bad they are. Um, and I think sometimes the, 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 the marking, the feedback in his eyes and his language fuels that where you have mid-unit tests, weekly tests, retrieval, low stakes testing tests, all, all to be marked on top of your your kind of unit tests and your more formal um, assessments. And I think you get to a point whereby also you look at the the, the the structure of social services, you look at sadly the reduction in CAMs, you look at social work being preoccupied with child protection, you look at the proliferation of pathologised behaviour in schools and the role of teaching becomes due to care towards looking at kids who are vulnerable in terms of neglect, who are vulnerable in terms of abuse, who may go hungry, who, who are tired, who don't have the correct uniform. Um, and, and you think to yourself, right, well, the, the role of a teacher is evolving. Um, and it's intensified, perhaps, because of societal expectations, 
but also intensified because of the deficits within society due to the austerity that exists and, 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 and quite frankly, the poverty. Um, we talk, I don't know if you have this word in England, but we, we, we talk in Scotland about poverty-proofing our schools. No, no. No, and it's the idea that if you're, if you're doing an enrichment, say you were doing a, a, a trip to the Science Museum, this whole this whole policy of poverty proofing is that you don't disadvantage kids who can't pay the five pounds or the seven pounds to go. Now that has always been the case that you would do your best for those kids who are finding it harder to get on these enriched tasks and and, and weekends and residentials. But throw in the fact that there's a 22 week waiting list for CAMS and schools are expected to provide counselling services. Look at the news the other morning when you have the Christ the King in Blackpool when they were giving parents milk and bread as they walked in. I don't know if you saw that in BBC Breakfast. Yes, I did, yes. And you think to yourself, schools are most definitely a community hub. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But the community hub is expanding in terms of its of its locus, in terms of its ability to not just be a part of the community, but in some sense heals their own word, but show a level of compassion and care towards the community beyond the formals of what we would say schooling. So it's evolved a lot, and I think a lot of teachers are so innately conscientious and so caring and compassionate about their kids that they they, they want the best, and, and that means sometimes that they work ridiculously long hours. You and I both know there's a flip side to that because it's not sustainable. You could argue that your effectiveness in the class over the, the weeks and months after that becomes a consistent pattern of working habits is greatly attenuated. And we're going to go and talk about that in terms of sleep and decision making. But we know that if you, in terms of health and well-being, are not at your optimum, that like any like any performance-driven sport, um, football, um National football, um, NFL athletes, um, cyclists. You wouldn't say to somebody who's a cyclist, right, I want you to do really well on the Tour de France, but I tell you what, going to stay up in Marks and Jotters before, I'm going to go and stay up and do some reading on Danny Cannon and Systems 1, Systems 2, <laughs> so you can work out what thinking you're going to do when you get up that really big hill. So <laughs> we get... I'm not, we, do, we don't have a systems level. We don't have a systems level the ability to, to, to think about health and well-being beyond tokens and tokenistic as gestures. And they are important. The idea of gift and care packages for staff's brilliant. The idea for you know periodic little messages in your pigeonhole are, are brilliant. But if at a systems level these things are necessary, you have to address the systems and not the personalities. Um, and I think that is an, a real ongoing dialogue with professional associations, with parents, with children, uh, with school leaders, um, and it's about, I think, I don't, I, how have you met Stephen Tierney, who was the CEO down at um, the um, uh, St Mary's Multibamba Trust Academy? I have, yes, I met him once, yes. Yeah, and Stephen, you know, Stephen's got this philosophy in schools about stripping back to what's important, and he, the, I know they went through quite an extensive phase of looking at practices in the school and saying, right. In terms of effectiveness, is that an 8 or a 9 or a 10? In terms of effectiveness, is that a 5 or a 6? Is that a 1, 2 or a 3? Right? If, if it's only a 1, 2 or a 3 or a 5 or a 6, why are we doing it? And then try mm. and prioritise what's important. 
Now that's that sounds simplistic, but at a systems level, even having that dialogue and being able to capture that dialogue and then create action thereafter, you're talking slow leadership to change. You're talking a long time. Um, so I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but I think in the meantime, teachers have to self-regulate as professionals and just turn around and say, I can't do that. And I'm going to give you a professional dialogue as to, I've done what I can, and I'm really not capable of doing any more without having an adverse effect on the very people that I'm here to make their lives better. It's so difficult, isn't it, Mark? Particularly if you're an individual teacher, perhaps you're in your second, third year of, of teaching. You've you've got all this going on that you've got to you've got to put time into developing your your subject knowledge. You've got to make sure you you, you understand what you're actually teaching. You've got to be on the ball when it comes to the health and well-being of, of, of your students. So you've, you've got to put time into that. And then, as we're going to go on to talk about um, a little later, you've got this increase in, in popularity and awareness of cognitive science and cognitive yeah. psychology. And there's, there's, there's the demand to know, know more about that. And then on top of all that, you've got, your, you've got just the, the admin side of teaching, the marking, the entry, filling out reports, all that kind of stuff. And it's hard, isn't it, as a as a novice teacher to either know what to prioritise, but also, as you say, to to have the confidence to say to your line manager, your head of department, SLT, whoever it is, look, I, I can't cope with this. And, and what inevitably happens is teachers just try to cope and then it it all falls apart. As, as we know, it's, it's difficult, though, isn't it, for, for individual teachers to, to, to know what to do in this situation? I, I think it is. And I think um, it's it's absolutely vital as, as you said in terms of retention and not just recruitment to keep people who you want to be in the profession to to, to have that love and that passion for doing what they want to do um, and you need to try and create the conditions around which they can do that and I, I have to say this um, I've had 16 years experience at international schools and they're infinitely better at doing that than, than my experience at UK schools um, and why is that, Mark? So you, you know, like listeners will, will, will turn around there and say, well, it's because the kids are better behaved or it's because the schools are better funded. Is, is it that simple or is, is, is there more going on there that we can learn from? There's no doubt that those are key ingredients of um, the level of behaviour is generally much higher. Um, you, <laughs> I mean, this is perhaps a tad pejorative, but when, we, when I taught in Hong Kong, we used to call it UK days when we were sidetracked by behaviour and we had things. <laughs> we used to turn and say in Hong Kong, we in our secondary school, we would get six or seven UK days a year. <laughs> um, so I, I think behaviour is absolutely a, a key aspect of why the focus can remain on learning and teaching in the classroom and professional development and giving teachers those conditions to want to do their job well and feel they are, and more importantly, feel they are doing their job well. Um, Funding is absolutely um, vital as well. You're absolutely right with that. Um, although uh, I know that international schools, it's, it's not the utopia that people think. There are funding constraints on those as well. Um, and um, when we were in Hong Kong, there was a, a large part of our subsidiary from the um, Hong Kong government uh, was, was taken away, which increased fees and put pressure on, on, on things. But not, I don't think to the, I think it would be fair to say, without trying to reduce the, the impact that it had in Hong Kong in my school, I think it would be fair to say the austerity that we experience at times here is not mirrored there. But I also think there's a, a culture a systems level understanding that 
if you generally want to see this attainment gap closing and, and whatever gaps you identify for that to be, whether it's socioeconomic status, whether that's manifests itself in reading of vocab gaps or pure attainment gaps as the exit point at school, you're going to have to put a lot of emphasis on classroom learning and teaching. Because excellent is really nothing more than consistently good. And consistently good is really nothing more than, more often than not, it's good and sometimes it's okay. Mm. And occasionally it might be bad, but that's okay if I can get the opportunity to reflect on it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I think in the in the international schools that I've worked in, there was that culture, there was that um, opportunity. And perhaps autonomy, Craig, because we were able to reconfigure the school day in Hong Kong where students didn't come in until 10 o'clock on a Tuesday and staff CPD was 8 till 10 every week on a Tuesday. And then students had house inter-house activities on a Friday afternoon from 1.30 till 3, which meant staff who weren't involved in that had the whole afternoon to do CPD. So there's four or, four or five hours which were dedicated to that. Um, and I think that opportunity to do it as an integral part of the day and not as an addendum in terms of twilight or Saturday conferences absolutely helps. And perhaps that's one of the things that we should be thinking about when we went back to your earlier question about workload and retention. How do you configure things into the school day without asking teachers to come out on a Saturday and asking teachers to, to, to stay for twilight? Because you, you, you've presented twilight, Craig, and with all the best will in the world, you can be the best presenter with the best the best message to give. It's sometimes a tough audience through yes. no fault. Um, so I think international schools have that focus. Um, from my own experience, I'm not saying all international schools because how could I? I haven't taught in all of them. But I would absolutely say that they have that focus on trying to keep learning and teaching in the classroom and do what they can to support that. Um, and my experience of that is the teachers reap the benefits of of that being seen as integral instead of an addendum or an appendage to what they already do. You can't keep on building layers in schools because your foundations will go. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this, Mark. And again, we'll, we'll get. I want to talk about your career um, for my next question. But just one, one, one final one on this. As as somebody who's experienced working in international schools and has seen those benefits, and also believes that it's not all simply down to better behaved students and, and and better funding, and also now as somebody who's influential with with within your own school with with, with the position you're in, um, what are the barriers that stop you taking those good things from international schools, like this idea of starting the school day later, or like this idea of having a dedicated afternoon where the students do something and the teachers can catch up on CPD? Is is that simply not feasible um, in the school system as you know it i think it might be feasible now but i don't think the drivers for it are necessarily focused on them uh, looking uh, closely at uh, classroom learning and teaching and trying to get consistently good i think the drivers are probably driven by austerity measures and how they can make fundings and if a four and a half day week is cheaper than a five day week if a 32 period week is cheaper than a 33 period week if a certain amount of time it, it, it affords them the opportunity to perhaps save money. At a functional level, that possibly is the, the overarching driver. But I, the flip, and I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound pessimistic or paint a dystopian picture of UK schools. I absolutely don't. Um, I'm very fortunate to have worked in schools in the UK where some of the teachers I've worked with are the best I've ever taught in. 
um, and talk with. And uh, um, I would most definitely say that that the. I've been fortunate to work with head teachers who have been of the same mindset that if they want their schools um, to improve, and you can open parenthesis and decide what you mean by improve um, and have that dialogue about it, one of the things which is a key driver is putting a consistent focus on classroom learning and teaching. And I've been fortunate to have head teachers and fellow members of SMT who have said to me, you know what, I, th- I think you're absolutely right and I think that's the way we want to go down. Um, of course, you still have to pay service to national priorities. Um, you still have to pay service to local authority priorities. But I'm happy to say that we've got the, the autonomy to turn around and say to staff, right, we've got a teach meet and we're looking at low stakes testing. I'm going to give you examples of how that might look in your classroom. And I'm going to tell you why we might do it. Not just how, but why. And we've got a complement of 105 FTE and we can get between 40, 50 and 60 staff giving their night up. But that's taken about 10 years to get to that stage, Craig. Mm. It's absolutely, um, to, to, to paraphrase Jamie's work, it's exactly, absolutely a, a slow leadership process. And it's about getting key personalities as drivers within the system to to espouse the merits of it. Um, and I also think it's very it's very important not to throw everything at the one time into the pot on top of what staff are doing. Um, so you've been in my school, you've you've done some CPD with our staff. Um, they loved it. It was very it was very very well received. Um, and you know that we've looked at for a full year feedback for a full year. That was our learning and teaching focus for a full year. We looked at differentiation. That was our learning and teaching focus for a full year. Um, And we kept it to one thing. uh, And there was pressure to do more than that. But we held our ground. Um, We looked at professional reading. We we brought in people who we thought could add to the conversation we brought you in. We had visits from Professor Mark Priestley, Professor Rob Davis. We had Tom Sherrington come in. We had Stephen Tierney come in. Um, We had Robin McPherson come in. And we said... We we want to look out the window in terms of expertise, but we also want to look inside their, their own school and focus on the, the pockets of expertise and try and marry those together in terms of our own context. And I think when it comes to an evidence base, evidence base isn't research. That's, that's not what an evidence base in my mind is. Um, an evidence base is how do you use research critically to link it to your staff and your own perceptions and professional judgments, your own biases, how do you challenge them? And then how do you look at your own context? Um, and you put all those three together, I think you've got something of an idea of what evidence looks like, but it's certainly not a direct translation from a textbook or a popular psychology book like Make It Stick or Dunlosky's work on um, effective study habits and just transpose them into an assembly and think somehow that should done it. It's a long process of leadership, dialogue, giving staff the opportunity to critically appraise it, to have friction. Schools don't like friction. Senior leaders don't like friction. They don't like people to come back to them and say, well, actually, I don't really like that because, well, you actually should encourage that because I think that strengthens why you believe something if you can articulate a contraposition. 
you don't always have to have a synthesis. You'll never get that. But I think if you can say to them, look, these are the reasons why I'm doing it. We're going to slow it down and do it via professional reading, professional dialogues, staged implementation, come back and look at it in terms of collaborative inquiry and then look at the impact in terms of data. And that's a very simplistic overview, but I think that gives you the opportunity to say to yourself, and the culture that I'm trying to create, I've now got 30, 40, 50 people who are part of our learning and teaching community, and that's fantastic. Jeez, superb stuff. Well, I think I, I, I think that's the longest math speed dating we've, we've ever done. <laughs> well, that, was, that was slow speed, state, slow speed dating. I like it. I like it, though. It's, we've, we've got a deep relationship. It's not this superficial, just speed dating, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. We've gone deep there. So I like that more. Well, well but, let, let, sorry, go on. I, 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 you know, the thing is, I mean, some of those questions were great segues into some of the things that we're going to talk about um, in terms of research and forums, research aware, workload, sleep, health and well-being, cognitive psychology. And I think that's one of the most important things. There's there's no single dot in terms of self-improvement. If it's a content, I'd say self-improvement and self-evaluations, a constellation of different things. There's no single dot that you can focus on without speaking about something else. I can't talk about research without talking about context, without talking about staff culture, without talking about designations, without talking about personalities, without talking about um, evidence base, without talking about external speakers. So it's really hard to to have that dialogue. Um, and, I, I, and, I, and I know from from speaking to you informally when we have done in the past, you have a wonderful passion towards towards thinking that what you did previously as a teacher, in some sense, and I'm, my, my choice of words here is really poor, so I apologise, in some sense was weaker than what you would do now as a math teacher. Oh, 100%. Yeah, incredible. Far weaker, absolutely. But then... If, um, and this isn't to apportion blame in any way, but you, you've got to create that culture whereby everyone has that opportunity to look at themselves at an introspective level and say, look, that's not a deficit. That's just to say that you can get better, not that you're bad. Yes. And I'm always sure that SLT or school governors have that latitude of compassion and thought when it comes to saying I've never really met teachers that come in and say right I really want to do a really bad job today I've never met so I think people deserve a degree of latitude if we know there are things that can be put in place in terms of professional development in terms of collaborative inquiry in terms of targets in terms of friction of thought if you want to help them Fantastic. Well, I've, I've got to ask you this, Mark. You, you've kind of teased it with, with some of your experiences you, you've had. But I know out of all my guests, and we've, we've done over 100 of these now, you've probably had one of the most varied careers in terms of teaching. <laughs> um, so I wonder, can you just give us a bit of a, a, a kind of brief overview of, of how it all started for you and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I will do. Um, yeah, it is a very varied. And when you tell people about how varied it is, they kind of look at you as if, have you been sacked in most of you? <laughs> uh, I'm happy to say that's not the case. Um, but um, it, it, I, 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 my my career has been a, 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 what I call a passport of opportunity. And it's basically predicated on the qualifications and the degrees that I got. So my career in education, and it's been a fabulous career, has been precipitated by education itself. So there's a wonderful 
wonderful irony and co-joining of how lucky I am because I wouldn't be where I am without the opportunity to be taught by some fantastic teachers. But um, I started off um, teaching in Scotland. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at B.A. Dons in, in the University of Edinburgh. Um, we, we were a lot, that was in the 80s, Craig, so we, we, we kind of, I don't know if, I don't even know if they do this in universities now, but you got the opportunity to kind of major and minor. So my first foray into the world of psychology was 1987. Um, and it was when the, 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 the lecturer, a, a fantastic Welshman called Arwen Mon Williams, um, brought his dog in to demonstrate. <laughs> he actually brought his dog in and I'm thinking to yourself, I think this guy's took the wrong turn and he thinks he's at the pub. But uh, <laughs> he was actually our education lecturer um, and he was doing psychology um, and he was looking at Pavlovian conditioning using his dog and I just I thought, wow, I've never heard of these words. What the hell is psychology? What does Pavlov or Pavlovian conditioning mean? I had no clue. That was not in my linguistic register um, as, a, as an 18-year-old. And I just opened up this world and I thought, I need, I need to know more about this. So I chose psychology as my major and we looked at, I kind of focused specifically on cognitive and sports psychology. And then I, my minor, um, I'm going to upset a few people here, I, I just could not get into philosophy. So my minor, I kind of focused on sociology and sociology and education. Um, and then I went to Abu Dhabi, where um, I was very fortunate to teach in some fabulous schools there, taught. PE and English as an additional language um, and then I went to back to uni, back to Glasgow um, and did my PGD, PGDE MPhil or in English Literature and English Language which segued into um, uh, psycholinguistics um, and then taught an, an EBD unit in Scotland um, then I moved to <laughs> from the EBD unit, which I think, what's what's EBD? Sorry, Mark. yeah, in, in England I think you call them pupil referral units. Oh um, yes, yes, yeah, true. Yeah, um, I taught there for three years. Um, very challenging. Probably the most informative and the fastest paced learning of my teaching career still. Um, and then I'm taught an amazing juxtaposition. I taught in Mearns, Mearns Castle, which is one of our highest attaining state schools. Absolutely loved it, but it was a complete antithesis of working in a, a pupil referral unit. And then I moved to where I am just now um, as a middle leader uh, in 2006 and got the opportunity to then go to Hong Kong. Uh, and I, I was a vice principal in uh, an ESF school in Hong Kong where I taught psychology, um, GCSE and uh, IB psychology. I love IB I don't know if you've ever taught the diploma program, Craig. No, I haven't, no. I love it. Uh, uh, by far and away, GCSE, A-level, hires, um, standard grades, intermediates, um, nationals, it's by far and away the best course I've ever taught. How come? I just think it was so challenging for kids, but and uh, part of the, I guess, the criticism that some people say is it's overly challenging for kids. Um, that it precipitates a lot of stress and anxiety, but there was a big focus on values, a big focus on extended essay, theory and knowledge, um, physical activity through cast time, and then your six six core subjects over two years. 
but the level the level that you could get into in terms of knowledge and dialogue and, and the, the diversity of, of, of thought and critical analysis the kids could come up with was just brilliant absolutely brilliant loved it absolutely loved it um, and then from Hong Kong back to Scotland um, and where I am now deputy head um, and I teach psychology uh, higher psychology which I love, absolutely love. Um, like probably like most senior leaders you've spoken to in this this podcast, the the, the classroom is their sanctuary, <laughs> and and I love it, I absolutely love it. And I hate when people come to the door and interrupt me when I'm teaching. Um, and I'm basically very fortunate that my colleagues in the the school office don't really interrupt me unless there's a critical incident. Um, so yeah, that's that's a kind of really varied background along education in terms of behaviour, in terms of aspirations, in terms of motivations, in terms of context, in terms of socio-cultural norms. My, the norms in Abu Dhabi were very different from the norms in Hong Kong, although people aspirations were pretty similar. They were very high, as were parental aspirations, I have to say. Um, and, and we're at the stage now where I'm a fortunate to be in a fantastic school I, I love I love the kids here there is absolutely no doubt that we and some of them face ridiculous challenges that no children and no child should have to face in terms of poverty and and in terms of socio-economic background and in terms of lack of opportunity or access but I think people are doing their best to try and, and overcome those barriers um, and probably that's one of the reasons why teachers work so hard because they do it for the best of intentions Fantastic. And, and as you say, we're going to be drawing upon that, that vast experience when we talk uh, either well, probably in the next next conversation when we talk about behavior, growth mindset, grit, resilience, all that kind of stuff. And um, let, let me ask you, Mark, before we uh, go any further, my my favorite question to ask um, guests on this, and it has been my favorite for a long time, is is to ask you to describe a favorite failure. So I wonder if you could think it could be a lesson that you've taught that didn't go according to plan. It could be so, some experience from your, your leadership. It could be anything you want but what i'm interested in is is what went wrong why did it go wrong and crucially what did you learn from the experience okay so me being me and i always want that a little bit more can i get <laughs> can i get one teacher and one as a senior leader that'd be amazing of course you can okay, right one as a teacher was the very first time i taught um in, in a secondary school and i was doing uh i was doing a pe lesson to um that would be ye, you, pre seven. You would so year nine or S two as as up in Scotland. Um, and I thought everything was going well. I was a student teacher, and the teacher seemed really happy. And she kept on saying, "This is going really well. Well done. Keep it going. Keep going round and giving feedback, making sure that you get to talk to everybody. Keep a handle on everything." And then I turned round and there was a wee boy, um, and he was urinating in the corner. <laughs> oh God. It, Thought, okay, that's slightly challenging. Um, now, thankfully, it was way before the time that people had uh, mobile phones. Otherwise, that I'm sure that would have went viral. <laughs> so, I I thought to myself, right, is, pardon the pun, but is my lesson that pish? <laughs> so I don't, don't, don't think it's that. And then I said, to the, I said, I said to the teacher, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And she said. Ignore it. I went, are you sure? Ignore it. Go on with it. Just don't look over. So we just continued with the lesson, and then sure, no, no one else batted an eyelid, and then, and then she said to me at the end of it, "How do you think that went?" And I went, <laughs> "What question? <laughs> How did that go?" 
Oh yeah, it was really good. Somebody just peed in the corner. It was really good. I was really happy with it. Um, and she said, "No, how did you think it went after that?" And I said, "I couldn't believe the fact that everyone else just ignored them. Not one person batted an eyelid. Nobody made fun." And she said, "No, she goes. There's a chromosome disorder there, and, and it has an, an adverse impact in terms of his ability to control the bladder." And I was like, "What? I don't know that." And she goes, "Yeah, you never read your notes." You never read your notes before you got to know the class, before you got to see the class. And you need to learn to know who walks through the door. And if there's kind of uh, factors, effect, additional support need factors, you got to get to know them. And that, was, that was my learning curve for that one. That was a massive learning curve because I should have known that, but I didn't. Uh, Do you know what? Just on that, Mark, I mean... The- that is an absolutely brilliant story and a brilliant example of that. And it, it, it makes me reflect on, on, on things I've done. Whenever there's um, kind of a whole school, uh, we, kind of whole school meetings um, just on a Wednesday or whatever for 10 minutes just before you go to, to registration and stuff. And there's loads of messages and stuff being given out. Often it will be something something about a child who's either something's happened at home or they're, they're ill for some reason. And it's very easy, isn't it, in the kind of the rush to, to to be thinking about the things that you need to be thinking about and so on to, to to miss those messages or not pay them full attention or skim over them in an email and stuff like that but it's things like that that are yeah are so important for the reasons you've said and, and on the wider thing this this is this is kids lives these these are the students we teach and it's our responsibility to to do whatever we can to to know them as well as we can if that makes sense sure and and, and perhaps when you know if you if we kind of link that back to what you said earlier if there's an intensification a workload and an acceleration of workload how do we stop things from from kind of getting through the gaps how do you yes. you know you are so preoccupied with you, you, your mind is really full let's be honest um, and does it, is there an inevitability that plates will drop I don't know I don't want to paint a, dy- a dystopian but there are there are givens that staff must do I mean you know, I, I find it difficult to excuse when somebody turns around and says to me, yeah, I didn't do the register because I was so busy. Well, the register is a legal document, getting a habit of walking through the door and the first thing you do is do the register. Um, I find things like that difficult to excuse, if I'm honest with you. Um, but the reality is I can accept that sometimes there's so much work that somebody just said, look, I haven't read the confidentials from last night. I haven't read the update from last week. I apologise. Well, do you know what? I don't think you're doing it deliberately, but... Keep a wee eye and, stay, and, 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 and see if there's any updates in terms of CMS and medical conditions that you need to be aware of. Um, and and I'm, I'm willing to accept that fallibility, but there are certain things I'm not willing to accept in terms of things um, plugging through the gaps. And um, people who are in mass who work with me and have worked with me is I, I cannot stand teachers, um, and I can't stand the, the practice of teachers teaching from their their desk in their chair. I can't stand it. Um, and it's uh, I, I would make no bones about it, and, and I'm happy to come on and have a contraposition with anyone else who you have as your guests. Um, even with the technology where I can look at what you're doing, and if it's a one-to-one laptop or iPad school, and I can look at every single one of your your screens and, and see what you're doing, I, can't, I want you to interact with me at a human level. I want you to give me feedback. You know, if you know Rory McElroy's coach. He's not going to take a video of Rory McIlroy and then at the end of the the 18th, as he's walking into the clubhouse, say to him, do you know what, see that video analysis, I realised that your swing was too fast. (laughs) 
But why would teachers not turn around and say to kids on the first hole, to draw a metaphor and an analogy, why would they not say on the first hole, I think you could change that, I think, in terms of that writing, you might think about yourself, well, is that paragraph too long? Could you truncate that paragraph? Is there any ways you could describe that better? You used, you've used that word however too many times. What, to draw a simple analogy, you, do, you wouldn't wait to the 18th green before you were correcting someone at golf, so why would you do that in teaching? So get up off your chair and get to the first green and start talking to people. Well, let me let me take a, a. I agree with you, but let me take a slightly uh, d- different perspective. Is is there a danger that we we kind of interfere a little bit too much and we don't give the kids a bit of bit of space to do thinking for themselves, to recognise their own mistakes, to to correct, to have conversation with the person next to them, and start to to form their understanding that way is is there a danger that as teachers as soon as we set the kids to work we hover around and and i, I know i found myself saying is everybody okay what, what are you talking about here what are you thinking about and, and it's the kids just you haven't even had time to to digest it themselves first is there, is there a danger we can go a bit too far the other way I, I, yeah i think there is you're absolutely right um and apologies if, if that's what i was the, the the kind of narrative i was i was suggesting I'm, I'm thinking more at a kind of balance whereby and i think this is sometimes where the value of accrued wisdom and experience is not appreciated in schools it's easy for novice teachers and early early teachers to want to do the right thing to want to be frenetic to want to to give feedback all the time and and perhaps we're complicit only in creating a culture of learned helplessness where kids yeah, i mean you've been in the class when you've thought to yourself with no hubris whatsoever. That was a brilliant explanation. Now get on with it. <laughs> yeah. And then a hand goes up one nanosecond later and goes, yeah, I don't get that. And you just think, oh my goodness, how do you not get it? That was a brilliant explanation. And um, you, obviously that's your silent voice in your head and not you're not saying that to, uh, <laughs> to humiliate the poor child. But you're basically, you're kind of tread that line between wanting to have a level of scaffolding modelling that will allow them to lead for whatever whatever lead their learning means or whatever an autonomous level of learning will be in terms of kind of metacognitive skills, if you want to call it that. Uh, and we'll talk about metacognitive skills in terms of growth mindset because it's impossible not to talk about them when you, when you put both both those together. But there is that danger, and I think that's where the, the opportunity for perhaps collaborative inquiry where you get two or three people in and, and lesson study, for example, is quite a good way of, of, of focusing not on deficits, but of just kind of looking at the kids rather than the teacher and saying, well, do you know what? That kid was doing really well and you came over and did you need to? Um, and th- those two kids were off task, but you ignored those. Um, so I think it's the whole idea of trying to uh, put that together where you think, right, it's my... Is my input going to have a value added? <laughs> yes. And it, it just, again, it, it's when you break it down, as, as, as you're doing, and, and rightly so, that it really dawns on me just how complex a job being a teacher is. And, and trying to trying to explain in words to, to a teacher when you know when to intervene and when you know to kind of just let, let it simmer for a bit and see what happens. It, it's so difficult, isn't it? And it's something that just kind of comes with experience and it's, I find it when I work with less experienced teachers, it, it's very hard to kind of fast track them to they, they almost want a set of rules and they're just not, there aren't rules, are there? Do, do you think it just kind of comes with experience knowing when to help kids, when to not, when to intervene with behavior, when to not? Or, or are there practices that can help novice teachers get a bit better at this quicker? 
I think it comes with experience and it also it's a little bit like the, the old analogy um, practice makes perfect no it doesn't practice practice and corrective feedback then practice then corrective feedback then practice and self self introspection self evaluation makes makes perfect if there is such a thing in teaching so it's not just practice so you need that level of feedback beyond beyond your own thoughts mm. but we also need to you you don't need the deficit model of someone giving you a prescribed orthodoxy and saying, right, you will have that for 10 minutes and then followed by retrieval practice, you will scaffold and model. Followed by that, you'll have two tasks where the, teach- the, the pupils will not be given any help. You can't have that level, but what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to marry good understanding of pedagogical techniques and strategies in the class. And you need to you need to marry that with your, your, your kind of understanding and your relationships with the kids and relationships are important because I know from teaching my psychology class that I can ask them um, multiple choice uh, questions at the end of it some simple AIFL um, techniques to, to check whether or not they've understood right okay there's a five there's a four there's a three where are you in my explanation of why restoration theory of sleep is a biological re- explanation as to why we sleep where are you with your understanding of that um, and if somebody puts a five up, and this happened the other day, I put a, they, they put a five up, and, and that's maximum level of understanding. Well, that person put a five up, but I knew for a fact they did not know because I'll tell you that their attention was not focused on me. Their attention was focused on the snow coming down the window. <laughs> so your crude wisdom then is go over to speak to them privately and turn around and say, right, okay, right, okay. Well, I'm going to ask you this slightly differently. Um, okay, how does Shapiro's ultramarathon? research suggests that um, restoration theory is a strong explanation as to why we sleep. So you would then ask something more privately and try and check on that. So you're checking for understanding all the time, but you're also marrying that up to your understanding of the kids' paralinguistic cues, their nonverbal communication, their attention, um, the, the previous work that they submitted. And what you're trying to do all the time is check against biases. Because Craig Barton met a guy, gave me homework and he got 7 out of 12. But actually, he completely understands what I'm talking about now. So I can't just go on my biases. And I need to, uh, kind of Dylan Williams to look at some of his stuff about checking for understanding Doug Lamov's stuff. Um, and, and it is. And that's where it is complex. And I think that's also where it's, 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 it's energy demanding to do it well. It's really energy demanding to do teaching well. Such such a a non passive um, interaction, um, and even when you you say you're not intervening, you're cognitively you're cognitively active, deciding yes. why you're not intervening and who you might intervene with in terms of feedback or wanting one attention that would afford them more opportunity. Or you're going up to somebody very politely in your ear and saying, back on task, I know you're not on task, I'll come back around in two minutes, you better be doing what I ask you to do. So you're doing all of that, and there's that cognitive demand of of being able to, to lighthouse and look at what what's what value added are you going to give in that moment, and, and who's going to get that, and why do they need it? And when you link that back to pedagogical, te- pedagogical techniques in terms of checking for understanding, assessment for learning, and I think that's where the accrued wisdom um, it develops, um, and, and that's why it's not easy. I think it's not easy at all. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, fascinating um, as as ever, Mark. What 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 was your second favourite failure? You said you had one from leadership as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I was um, um, so this is kind of ten years as a DHT now, and I remember in my first year thinking to myself, "Yay, I'm the most intelligent person in the whole wide world." <laughs> so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce four 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 um, strands to our um, school improvement priority this year. Um, and it's going to be learning and teaching, and we're going to do a whole year on growth mindset, working memory, lesson study, and homework for learning. <laughs> and I got four groups, and I got them populated with about six or seven, and I got all the professional reading. And thanks to John, um, John Tom, uh, John Thompson, and Alex Quigley down at um, Huntington, I went down and visited them and spoke to them about what they were doing. They were great, and they gave me their resources and said, "Look, some of this is really good." Um, and I came back up and I battered it for a year, literally battered it for a year. And the staff just turned around and said, too much. Can't do all this. It's too much. And I think it was the first time that I thought to myself, you know, you you might understand growth mindset to a decent level. You might understand what collaborative professional inquiry looks like. You might understand what lesson study you might understand how working memory impacts on cognitive load theory and how many pieces of you put information you put up, which is new information linked to old information. Not everyone does. So slow. And I don't mean that. That sounds dead. Doesn't that sound almost full of this wonderful world of Mark is beautiful. I love Mark. But it's not, I'm not saying that. It's, it's my own. It's, I, I, I was too passionate. Um, to put in place what I thought was the right thing, and and it was too much. It was just too much. Um, and we uh, and staff were very quick to say, slow down, slow down if you want to do this well. Um, and that's not a surprise, Craig. You've been in schools where you get this initiative overload for all the right reasons. Yes. But they, it can only dilute effectiveness if you've got so many initiatives going on at the one time, because people are human and plates plates drop and some plates spin quicker than others so what do you attend to and why do you attend to them so we slowed it down and that's where the whole idea about doing one one focus for one year only came in um, and we spent a whole year on memory for learning we spent a whole year on homework for learning where we 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 did parental questionnaires we did parental workshops we did pupil questionnaires we did pupil workshops we did staff workshops we went down to Huntington, we brought in Show My Homework and, and we said, look, what what is going to make homework a value added without being a stress? How is it going to be a value added rather than a tick box to placate parents to say we give three three hours homework to year seven? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, 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 that was a real turnaround for me to just slow, slow the world down. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Um, well, can we turn our attention now, Mark? And this will be the first of many daft questions I ask you throughout this conversation <laughs> and the next one. <laughs> and that is, um, what's the difference between cognitive science and cognitive psychology? Because I reckon I'm using, I'm either using, I, I tend to just say cognitive science all the time. So I'm either wrong okay. or I'm using them kind of interchangeably and not at the right time. So well, what's the difference between those two terms? I think you probably, and again, I hope my understanding um, is accurate and I'm happy to be corrected by people who are infinitely more knowledgeable than I am. But I think people do use them interchangeably. And I think perhaps when people talk about cognitive psychology, I think quite a lot of people are really focusing on one aspect of cognitive psychology in terms of memory. Um, But 
for me, um, cognitive science is a wider interlap of knowledge domains and fields of inquiry that segues into aspects of cognitive psychology, but is not necessarily under the umbrella of cognitive psychology. So if I if I said if I said to you right, okay, so cognitive psychology in itself is a field within psychology. You've got social psychology, differential psychology. For example, uh, you've got um, cognitive psychology, and within that you've got subfields. So you've got language, perception, intelligence, attention, uh, thought, problem solving, and memory. Now, uh, let me let me just use language, and I'll, I'll try and illustrate kind of from language why the the const the construct of cognitive science. And language as an example of that is slightly different from what language in terms of cognitive science would look like. Okay, so if you if you think about language, um, and within the area of cognitive psychology, okay, then you're kind of we're kind of looking at uh, first and second language. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of looking at. Uh, kind of uh, maybe a Steven Pinker or a Chomsky an overview of first language against a second language acquisition of, of I don't know, Stephen Krashen, for example, comprehensible input plus one. Uh, so, and then you're looking at in, in psychology developmental aspects of psychology linked to language. So you're looking at brain maturation, you're looking at vocab, you're looking at critical period hypothesis between four, five and six. But if I link that and, and, and all of that's probably big, Fancy language, it doesn't really mean that much. But if you link how you acquire language in terms of psychology, then you're, you're really talking about brain function, internal cognitive processes, impact of sociocultural factors. So it could be where you live, uh, how many people are around you, um, how often do they speak, what language are you exposed to, what's your level of immersion patterns. Um, but then if I link it to anthropology, then I'm slightly diversifying that lens. I'm kind of looking at maybe at origins of language, the etymology. I'm looking at morphology or syntax. Then if I take it a stage further and I'm looking at sociology, then I might be looking at language and power. And I might be looking at the empire and how we impose. We imposed English on other parts of the world, how we try to stop them from speaking in their L1, their, their, their kind of native language. So then you start to think about things like um, linguistic imperialism. And, and I think for me, what, cognitive science, and I hope, this, I hope that parallel has been quite clear, cognitive science kind of opens up an interdisciplinary look at perhaps aspects that we would study in cognitive psychology, but not necessarily through the lens of cognitive psychology. Um, does that make sense? I don't know if that was quite a long-winded way of saying things that you're thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> no, not, 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 not at all. Um, I, and I think as as we kind of progress through this discussion, if the, the, there are some terms that you use, um, and when we've just been having informal conversations, yeah. you've, you've used some terms and I've been thinking, right, I really should know exactly what that means, but I don't. And then I've kind of gone away and looked it up and yeah. thought, right, okay. So when, as and when they come up, I may just stop you and just ask you just, oh. to, just to clarify some of those, oh. if that's all right. Um, let, let me just ask you. Let me just ask you this, then, Mark. And um, well, for, for two parts of this question, really. And um, first off, do you agree that there's been an increase in, in interest in both cognitive science and cognitive psychology by teachers? Um, and if so, what, why do you think that's the case? Well, I will answer that, and it's a, it's a fantastic question. 
does my explanation of why I think cognitive psychology and cognitive science may be related but different fields make sense to you now? Yes, I think so, yes. Well, let me check for understanding. <laughs> Go on. Here as I can be. If five is complete and total understanding and one is absolutely no understanding after my explanation, where would you say you are? Um, I would say between a three and a four I think. Why, why are you not a two then um and because i think i see i i start to see differences between the two um but the reason i am not complete on it is so say for example i take a couple of the things that i think are the most important to teaching so for, for me anyway so let's say take cognitive load theory yeah. and bjork's work on desirable yeah. difficulties I would still label them as cognitive science, but I'm wondering whether particularly cognitive load theory has some key aspects of cognitive psychology in it. So that I'm, I'm a bit uncertain about, yeah. about that distinction. Yeah. And I think cognitive load theory, because uh, I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely not overly um, au fait. I'm relatively au fait with Sweller's work on that. And, and, and obviously it has a massive um, correlation to working memory and, and, and what we can process it and manipulate and store at a given time. But there are sociocultural factors which will impact. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And context is dependent as well. Um, and, and as a schema schematic understanding as well. So, yeah, I think there is that overlap. I think what I was, I'm, I'm trying to say is that the lenses of cognitive psychology relate to other disciplines within anthropology or linguistics or artificial intelligence or sociology, which allow a deep discussion, uh, but a slightly different lens to be placed on it. So if we, we wouldn't necessarily talk about um, Foucault's understanding of language and power in terms of psychology, but you would kind of understand that there are certain language there are certain words that have a schematic inference um which may create this kind of power base that people may have over others so for example if i said to you it's professor mark keely uh, or mark keely would you then think to yourself do you know what if he tells me something am i more inclined to believe it if i believe the nomenclature professor mark keely i see yes so then Thank knowing you. you knowing you as i do i'm, I'm just skeptical of most things you say anyway regardless <laughs> regardless of the time very good judge of character <laughs> <laughs> but i hope that i hope that's clear i mean not everyone likes my distinction of it it makes sense to me why i don't think they're the same things but why they're related and it also makes sense to me why they enrich each other if that makes sense Yes, got it. So, so to, to to return to the the question about whether do you think it is true that teachers are, are using these terms and more aware of them and there's more interest in, and if so, where does that come from, Mark? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. It's a question we've asked in school. Um, I, I, I hope, I really, really hope that that if you spoke to our staff, that if you said a few things to them. Rosenstein's principles, the work that you do in terms of how I wish I'd taught maths, and you split the board into two, and then you kind of have your your silent teacher part. Our staff, certainly our math staff, would would be okay with that work. Um, at a wider level, I don't know whether or not we, you and I and others are guilty of an attribution error where where we assume that 
people on the Twitter universe or people who read books or people who read tests or schools weekly are, ne- are, are, are in the majority of people within the teaching profession. Yes, that's true. Yes. And, and, and you and I would probably normalise our wallpaper. I call it normalising your wallpaper. When you think that your your house is 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 decorated the way other people's houses are, <laughs> I like that. It's good. I like that. And and it might not be, it absolutely might not be. Their wallpaper and my wallpaper may not be the same things whatsoever. And I don't notice my wallpaper after two days, and they don't notice theirs. And if I don't notice, if that becomes my norm, that I think people are talking about um, research or evidence informed, for um, example, Dunlos. Okay, if I would. would would you say from your, you're in a better position in some sense to, to, to respond to this, but would you say that if you, you're, through your visits in terms of going into schools and doing CPD work with, with colleagues across Britain, that most schools would be au okay with Dunlosky's work on effective study habits or Rosenshine's effective so Ro- Rosenshine definitely and um, Dunlosky not not so much so whenever I talk about retrieval and I, I talk about homework and low stakes quizzes and so on and I share the Dunlosky stuff that doesn't seem to have caught fire as much as as Rosenshine as in, in my experience anyway yeah and I think and perhaps there's that there's that error that confirmation bias where we think that our world in our world view is what everyone else sees but um I still believe that it's ever growing, Craig. I absolutely believe there's an inertia and there's an impetus to it in terms of um, I, I call it a I call it concentric circles. It's, I call it three concentric circles. You're research aware, which allows you to become research informed, which may allow you to become research engaged. And you've got those three concentric circles that kind of talk to each other all the time. And that's kind of how I explain it away to staff. Um, and you might be in you might be in the out ring, you might be in the middle ring, or you might be in the centre ring. And you don't necessarily have to be research engaged to be able to turn around and say that you you can you kind of have a research awareness in terms of your your role as a teacher. Um, but the, and the flip side of that is, I may be aware that there is Dunlosky's work or John Rodiger's work. But I haven't read it and I'm not really sure how I access it. And even if I did access it, I'm not really sure that I have the language to be able to understand it. So I think that there's that starting point that we need to be very careful about normalising what our world looks like because I don't think that is everyone's world. So I think there is a growing um, momentum towards those three stances, if I can call it that. But I still believe they are in the minority. Um and I think things like Research Ed, which Research Ed is all, I, mean, I know there's been contentions on Twitter recently about Research Ed. It, it, it's always been a fabulous source of CPD for me. I've been fortunate to speak at it. I leave there thinking to myself, this is absolutely wonderful, getting the opportunity to, to talk to professors of education, professors of cognitive psychology, professors in neuroscience, who I would never really get the opportunity to engage with. And, and, and it's fabulous that I get a chance Almost, in, I, I get, is, is it democratised when you you have an equal footing and an equal seat at the table and you get that opportunity to talk? I think that's a good part. The, the work that Fergo and Kenny did on Pedigree is absolutely brilliant. The work that Deborah and, and Emma did on Northern Rocks is brilliant about allowing teachers that empowered voice and the ability to have that critical dialogue. Teach meets, are they a thing anymore? I don't know. Um, I, we still use them. I think they're important about 
when you say how do you create that and that momentum towards a kind of research informed profession absolutely i think they are the guys like yourself who who release top selling books i mean if you think about the books that you've sold and the books that perhaps tom sherrington sold there are a lot of books for an educational context um, and I think that can only be po- that can only be positive in trying to create this narrative where teachers are empowered to to ask critical questions about what they're being told to do, and moreover, what they do, and how they can look at that through a critical lens and say, "Why am I doing that? Why don't I try that? What might that be more effective? How will I know if it's more effective?" And ask those questions. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think that 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 will be the case that 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 inertia will keep on going, and and you and I are probably aware that there seems to be more teacher authors out there who are willing to to put their put their thoughts into books, which is I think fabulous. Um, I'm not necessarily saying all the books are of the same quality. <laughs> Well, <laughs> we obviously we won't go into specifics, but I I, w- I would agree with you on that one. But let, let me ask you, let me ask you this, Mark. Um, what? Because there's a danger with this, isn't there? The, the, we're all a bit more aware of the research, and I've certainly fallen into this trap. I didn't read a single piece of educational research for um, for twelve yeah. years, and then I got obsessed with it. And yeah. I read everything I could, and I thought, oh, fantastic! This is the this is the truth. This is this. so I'd read a paper and think, oh, amazing. And I take my interpretation of reading that research as, right, this is the best thing ever. And I'd try it with the kids and so on and so forth. Um, But the more I read and the more I speak to teachers, the more I learn that some of my interpretations perhaps aren't correct. And also that there are um, other studies that say the exact opposite and so on and so forth. And so what would you say with this increased awareness that that some of the downsides are? What what are some of the kind of misunderstandings that teachers have about either cognitive science or cognitive psychology that you've come across? You know, absolutely. I I think it's important to say that I think a lot of a lot of why this is perhaps a, a I don't want to say it's a growing narrative, but it's certainly it certainly has developed a sense of traction within our profession. I think a lot of that is actually down to the professionalism of teachers and the fact that they also want to they want to they want to improve. And and I think a lot of teachers um, deserve that level of um, accolade that they they have that energy and that motivation to want to do that that they want to read. Um, that's not to reduce those that don't. Genuinely, it's not. But I, I do I do think that having that. As you say, that, that, that motivation to, to go and read research after maybe 12 years at university or read books on why, what, what's the difference between storage and retrieval strength and how does that impact on desirable difficulties. I mean, that sounds so austere, doesn't it? You could probably be thinking to yourself, I'm going to watch Coronation Street or I'm going to <laughs> will I watch the Champions League or will I read about desirable difficulties? And there takes a lot of motivation to want to do that. Um, the flip side to that is, why can't that not be incorporated into the school day and be part of your, part of your school day like we did in Hong Kong? The other thing I think is professional standards are, are, are driving that. I certainly know in Scotland the GTCS have got standards whereby they would expect for early, middle and senior leadership standards for people to be, I think the exact terminology is research aware or research informed. Um, but you could also say, I, I call it a this is my wonderful world of abstruse words, Craig. Okay, I think it could be a, a kind of a parasympathetic rebound towards performativity and the stress that it comes. And it's the idea that teachers say, 
how can I inoculate myself against what I'm being told to do and I don't necessarily think is a good thing? Right, okay, yes. Yeah, and I also think that one of the why there could be there could be a growing um, uh, an increased inertia towards that because people are, are thinking to themselves, I'm not sure I agree with what you said, and I now need to provide myself with the skills, the knowledge, the the availability of research, the access to it to be able to engage in dialogue with you, so that I, um, I can put forward my point of view from a kind of erudite and, and professional stance. Um, now. In terms of the, the misconceptions, uh, I think there are a few, uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a shared understanding of even some of the terminology that we use in terms of research. Um, if I think if I, if I had said to some teachers, okay, right, we're kind of looking at cognitive psychology, practitioner inquiry, randomised control trials, lesson study, and you have to look at an experimental hypothesis. <laughs> I think you're going to, there's a danger that you create this whole new language where people get scared off. Um, and I think that's why the slow leadership impact is really, really, really important. I think there's a misconception that you can read a blog, albeit really, really well written, and then in some sense have that level of understanding of really complex psychological constructs. Um, I would always say that you need to go to source um, and uh, I would always say that you need to have, um, you can call them translators, you can call them interpreters, you can call them scaffolders, you can call them interlocutors, call them what you want, but you need to have a, a kind of like-minded people in your staff who can kind of sit down with you and say, that's my understanding, what's your understanding? So I think it, it's very much the mis misconceptions um, are around what I call fighting the war of the ghosts, where myths become become perpetuated without people really having the knowledge to 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 look at them at a deeper level. Um, so the first thing in terms of misconceptions is what do we actually mean by certain key terms and skills? Um, what is research engaged? What is research literate? How is that going to help me? What is the difference between an experimental hypothesis and a null hypothesis? How does that even matter to my life? <laughs> what, what, why is a randomised control trial seen as the gold standard in, 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 in medicine and can that translate into to, to education? What does that even mean? So I think the, try, the, those questions, I think people assume there's a shared knowledge that they can answer that, and I don't think there is a shared knowledge. I think it's really esoteric at the moment, and a few people hold that knowledge, and I think we need to widen that in terms of misconceptions. I think the other thing is you need to create a shared language, um, because I don't think that people, I don't think that people necessarily always know why they're being told to implement things, because I think they see it as a fad, or a zeitgeist, or a member of the senior leadership teams on Twitter, and they've seen working memory and dual coding, they've thought, right, we've, we've seen retrieval practice, right, I want every lesson to have retrieval practice, and if it's not, it's a fail. <laughs> so I think there's a lack of shared, link. I call it a shared understanding of the kind of, the shared language, the lingua franca, because people don't have the, the, the shared language. Um, so, do you think, from your book, How I Wish I Taught Math, that people need to have a basic understanding of cognitive architecture, for example? 
Um, it's it's difficult because I'm again if I, I hold my hands up I'm I'm not sure that I was informed as well informed as I could have been going into into writing that book because I I could only write about my interpretation of the papers I'd read and I'd read as many as I could but obviously in the, the last two years when I speak to people far more in, knowledgeable than me who can reflect on what what I wrote. Um, of course, there were gaps. There were things that I, I could have read more on and, and so on. So there's always that danger when when somebody reads my book or reads one of Tom Sherrington's blogs or Daisy Christodoulou's blogs that it, it's, it's this it's almost not Chinese whispers is the wrong way to say it. But it's it your it's your interpretation of somebody else's interpretation of a limited set of research. And it's it, it's always going to be difficult, isn't it? Well, absolutely, and, and you're right with Chinese whispers because in psychology it's called the war of the ghosts, uh, and you know that it becomes distorted from message to message um, and relay to relay, and, and and that's why I always try and get uh, get go to source, go to source, uh, and that, and that's why the slow leadership is really important. If you're going to do work on growth mindset, you're going to do work on um, cognitive load theory, and you're going to do work on dual coding, have an understanding of Badley's model of working memory. Have an understanding of why working memory is slightly different from short-term memory and slightly different from long-term memory in terms of what it can hold, what its duration is, how it can manipulate information. Have that basic understanding because at a pragmatic level, how much you put on the board, for example, and how much you write linked to whether or not it's new information or old information and how what the what what that is in terms of marrying up between a percentage of new information which leads to, sorry old information which leads to new information can cognitively overload their working memory as you know the extraneous load so what you have to then think about is right okay how much am I going to put up on this PowerPoint am I going to use phrases and then I'm going to use that as the hook to be able to explain and if I do use that as the hook and I have my professional knowledge and deep subject knowledge Am I then going to draw something on the board at the same time as the PowerPoint? Am I going to put on a piece of audio, audio, uh, an audio piece, which is going to then overload the phonological loop because there's too much going on? And then I think to myself, do teachers really need to know this? Do they know know. about the phonological loop or the visuospatial sketch pad that they can work together with the CE but you can't overload one of them because basically what happens is you put too much strain on working memory that means that it can't encode properly it can't transfer which means your story strength is low which means your retrieval strength will be low yada yada I, I, I struggle I struggle with trying to understand sometimes what teachers need to know about cognitive architecture um, to be able to to understand how the theory links to the pragmatics of what they do in the classroom. And I'll be honest, I think one of my other failures is I probably have gone overly theoretical in the past. I've expected people to be really interested in why badly put in an episodic buffer in 2000 and they've looked at me and said, what time does this finish up? <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I think I've, I've been guilty of the same, but it, it's so it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you, you go too far the other way and you end up just telling staff to do something with no reason why it's it's done. It's, it's incredibly hard to to get that balance. And, and it goes back to what we were saying before about what what would you choose? Let's say, for example, we'll use Tom, Tom Sherrington as an example. He, he won't mind. Let, let's say Tom's written a blog about cognitive load theory. What would you prefer? Would you prefer your staff to either... Read, just read Tom's blog and nothing else or 
the other the other two sides of it are they don't read tom's blog because they think well if i read it then i've got to read all the original sources and i simply don't have time to yeah. to do so so it, it's really difficult isn't it mark because the average teacher simply may not have the time or the will or and i'm going to put myself in this camp perhaps the technical knowledge to understand some of these research papers because they're a bloody nightmare some of them you have to read them like three or four times to figure out what the hell they're going on about so it's so useful to have somebody who's distilled that and key key information down for you but then of course you get this chinese whispers or the, or the, the ghost yeah. thing where yeah so I, it's a real difficult situation isn't it i i, I think it is um i think there are there's no one single answer or response to it but i think there's a a collective a collective ways that you could address it um which may help as you've said you could get i think there's people on the staff who can um tra- if you want to say translate or interpret into a language which is accessible i think there's also people in uh, on my staff who are much better at saying right this is what you're saying in terms of that but that basically what means is and you just need to present two or three new things in the one lesson and not really any more than that because i think that would have a too much air an overload on what i was trying to do um, I, they don't need to talk about the supervisory attentional system at a neural correlate level and how that impacts on Norman and Chalice's model of the central executive compared to Badley. They don't need to know that. But how do you get that level of knowledge with somebody in your staff that can translate that into a meaningful praxis of theory into effective classroom practice? So we've got maybe two or three. The research leads that I think have been quite important in, in English schools and research schools. Um, I'm thinking of Simon over at the, in Blackpool. I'm thinking of Alex when he did that role at Huntington. They seem, that seems to me to be a positive step to try and do something about that. The, the work of the EEF in, in terms of the, 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 the kind of the reports they put out are, are really accessible, I think, and they're really good. I also think col- collaboration with universities also exists anyway. Um, and you know it's quite it's quite common for us to bring in. We've brought in Bob Davis. We've brought in Professor Mark Priestley. They've spoken to our staff. Um, we brought in Dr. Phil Wood when we were doing lesson study. And, and the, I think you have to you have to you can't patronise staff and have an intellectual conversation without using intellectual discourse. Oh, but yes. you don't have to make it so abstruse and um, so difficult to access that they don't see uh, an applicability in the class. I do think digests are very good as well. If you can get somebody to go to a source and get a good digest, and I think maybe the British Psychological Society digests are pretty good for that. Um, and I think that's also why it's really important, though, when, it, when what you're saying is that you get somebody in SLT who doesn't manipulate some of the research into these Orwellian um, ins- inspectorial processes of walking in with a, um, a Rosenshine tick box and saying, right, you only did six out of the ten, that's a field <laughs> Um And I think there is the danger, as you say, that if people don't have that nuanced understanding that a lesson is about 40 or 50 different approaches going on at different times and with different skills and strategies and techniques we have hundreds upon hundreds of cognitive decision processes going on throughout a 50-minute lesson that complexity is at a deep level is there but at a surface structural level you have to kind of strip that back for teachers and say right pragmatically when you're writing on the board don't talk to the powerpoint 
don't put two audio things on at the one time. Don't you talk over an audio piece, for example, without pausing it and trying to elucidate something. Ask why. Don't always just tell them, ask why. Versailles had a, a negative impact in terms of the rise of nationalism and uh, or extreme nationalism in, America, in Germany in the 1920s. Why? National psyche, shame, yada, yada. So they have to ask these why questions. But I think what you have to try and do is compartmentalise so that the new, the old information that you think you've consolidated to a point of schematic understanding links to the new one. And I have to say that that's a real has been a real learning curve for me. And I think um, without using your your podcast, and I'm not getting paid for this, but I think the work that Oliver Cavi Glowley is doing on and Joe Coden is really good to try and explain that in, in ways which teachers can access. Um, and I think it's really really important that that work doesn't allow SMT to create this prescriptive orthodoxy of I want retrieval practice in every lesson, I want dual, co- dual coding in every task. Um, you know this this whole assimilation into um, this what, what people skew they skew the research into almost almost if you like Orwellian kind of um, mechanisms to control. Uh, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, I, I saw an absolute classic version of this a couple of years back when, uh, whenever Hattie's work was was really popular about effect sizes and 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 head teachers, I, I won't name the school, but was um, kind of putting post-it notes in in teachers' pigeonholes saying, "Congratulations, I saw you did something that has an effect size of like you know 1.2 or whatever in your lesson today. That's going to contribute to how many years worth of extra learning for your students." And again, it's 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 that it's latching on onto something and trying to turn it into something that it was it was never designed to be and um, that that's one where one, one way i see um kind of research and stuff being misused but i wonder mark have you come across any specific misinterpretations from teachers for some of the from some of the kind of big hitters whether it be bjork's work on desirable difficulties whether it be the rosenshine principles whether it be ollie's stuff on dual coding is is there anything from the the kind of popular trendy theories where you see actually there's quite a few teachers who've, who've not quite got that right on that is there anything that springs to mind there um within the context of my school um that, that, honestly that's a really good question um genuinely i don't know if i could answer that with a, a degree of kind of validity or veracity i, I, I don't know um i would hope not um well, I mean, we do have formalised lesson observations from SLT and middle leaders, but we kind of don't do it that way. Um, we kind of just look one thing and they turn around and say, right, I'm doing, I'm looking at feedback today, so come and see how I do feedback. And then we would, we would go in and then they would, we'd meet before it and they'd say, this is what my focus is. This is what I think I do well. We would then go in and look at their lesson and then we would get together after the lesson. So it's a three-part model and we would say, look, I think that was really good. How do you think that could be better? I haven't really seen anything where they misinterpret what I think um, some of some of the main references in terms of cognitive load theory or working memory in terms of um, how we can how much information we can assimilate. I do think there is I do still think there is a tendency to put too much information um, on the board. At the yes. um, I do think there's a tendency for staff. Um, to who don't have good subject knowledge to 
read to the PowerPoint and make sure that everything that they want to see is covered in the PowerPoint. Um, I do think there's a tendency for some staff to to basically turn around and say, um, I'm going to finish with a plenary and that means I've done a formative assessment lesson. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I, I would be honest with you, Craig. See, when I come back on your podca- podcast, ask me that again and I'll make a conscious effort. You're trying to see whether or not that's something which walks in our classrooms. Because at the moment, I'm not overly sure. Um, Mark, just before you we, we wrap up part one, what, what do you think? I mean, this may be an impossible question, but are there any key things that, that you would want teachers to take away from research into either cognitive science or cognitive psychology? Um, yeah, most definitely. Absolutely, most definitely. Um, I'm not saying that cognitive psychology has the answers. I'm not saying that cognitive psychology uh, is the only lens that will allow us to, to improve aspects of learning and teaching, but I do think that it is quite a powerful lens if we can learn to focus it in a way where we, we don't necessarily always look for deficits um, or what's wrong. Um, and we try and create this culture where collaborative we look and say, like, you know what, how might that look better? I really, I really, really like the the, the, the kind of Steve DeShazer work and, and Sue Kimberg work in solution focused dialogue, and I think you can and you can incorporate that really well into your kind of professional development culture. And, uh, and one of the things that that helps overlay is how 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 do we know that there are aspects of what what we need to address in terms of school, our school? And then certainly one of the things that I would I would look at from cognitive psychology and cognitive science actually probably is a better term for that is, is our, our kind of reading gaps in schools. Um, if, if our children today are going to be kind of the, the adults of tomorrow and they create, remember, they create a sense unit of their world, they create their own, they, they merge their pictures and their videos into a sense unit and a meaning of their own lives uh, and we know we know from uh, from a, a lot of the work, I mean, Alex's book, I'm really looking forward to reading Alex Quickly's book, that and Dan Willingham's stuff on um, the, the, the reading mind that, that is so complex, but he, he kind of talks about getting kids to read uh, as a, a kind of cognitive motivator, um, as, as how we're going to develop this un, this understanding of, of how knowledge and, and thought interact in terms of sense units. And I think in terms of um, the science of it, if that's the right word, I think, um, the reading mind, Dan William, would be a real good place to start. Um, and he's not—he's not naive. I mean, I think at one stage he says that there's so many mental processes involved that an explanation of reading comes what he calls perilously close to trying to explain the mind. <laughs> so it's it's incredibly complex, but at theoretical level, I think that's worth 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 us looking at in terms of cognitive science. But I also think at a pragmatic level, the work of a friend of mine and a, a guy who we've, in, we've had in working with, with the staff as well as Kenny Piper and his book Reading for Pleasure is really just about strategies and, and hooks and to try and engage kids to read and enjoy. And as he and as he, he calls it, reading's your passport to everywhere. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a great it's a great aspect of cognitive science which I think we need to understand better because when you talk about any attainment gap or any achievement gap it's so predicated on the reading. Um, another thing is obviously the vocab a vocab gap in language acquisition in terms of cognitive science. 
if you look at the work that uh, many people have done, the EEF, Dorothy Bishop down at um, Oxford in terms of language impairment and how that impacts on development. And again, Alex's work on the, the, the vocab gap, you know, you know that straight away before kids come to school, they, they could be six, six months to a year behind in terms of early years and, 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 and year one. Due to their, their kind of assimilation of language and their exposure to language and vocab. Um, so I think any going down a route of subject specific, and I think going down a route of a subject specific, if you want England, I don't know if this is correct, eh, whether or not this label of England going down a kind of knowledge rich curriculum uh, is accurate. Um, there seems to be a lot of talk about it in terms of that narrative. But when you think about how important meta languages are within that with over and above common language, um, when you look at I mean, I think a simple stat that Alec talks about in terms of close reading, you really want to try and learn and understand 95% of the words to ensure comprehension. So if I'm looking at a comprehension text and I don't get that, it's a really disadvantage. Take that into key stage four and five, and if you've got those vocab gaps, you're two, maybe 18 months, two years behind already. So it's not, I don't really think it's a marker of intelligence. In some sense, it's, it's a marker of lack of exposure to, to vocab and cognitive science to help explain how we can close that gap. And that's massively important for me. Massively important. But think about this. An analogy. You know, your, your best football coaches, your, your FIA licensees and your pro license coaches work with the youngest kids in Spain and Italy. Yeah, we chuck our resources into Key Stage 4 and Key Stage 5 or the senior phase of the curriculum. No, let's do it at the junior phase. Let's do it at the start. Get your best people working in there with the best level of intervention. Get your intervention teams, your reading teams, your vocab teams in there. And I know some schools are doing that, and I'm not absolutely not saying that because I want to highlight what's not happening. Some schools are doing that wonderfully well, and I think there's national policies to address that. But I think that should be a determined focus to do that. That we, should, you know, if I said to a kid neo Nazis, what does that mean? Very few kids know that neo is a kind of a, a bound morpheme, which basically means new. So if they could almost work out what it means if they knew the kind of the kind of morphology of the language. So I think those things are really really important to help get a handle on in terms of cognitive science. And I think the last thing, the last thing for me in terms of cognitive science is is, is a trying to have a, an understanding that it's not a panacea, it's not a silver bullet, it's one of many things within your constellation of self, self-evaluation, self-reflection, critical reflection, school improvement that can help. But it's certainly one massively important dot within that constellation when you look at what does the evidence mean in terms of my experience, what does the research say, What's my local context? What's the data within my local contact context? What are the views of people within my? What's my professional judgment about that? And you try and assimilate that all together. Um, and I think that's a really powerful way of using um, research uh, to inform um, a kind of evidence, uh, an evidence-based dialogue to, to basically, I mean, what's the purpose of education? You can talk all day from Biesta, you can talk all from Rousseau and your philosophical contentions, for me, it's dead simple. The purpose of education is give people the maximum number of choices that they can have in life. Do they want to go to uni? Do they want to go to college? Do they want an apprenticeship? Do they want to go into the world of work? 
give them the opportunity to have those choices at the same time as being morally responsible people who kind of care about other people and care about themselves. And I don't think you'll go far wrong. What a fantastic way to end part one, Mark. And this is, as a, as a kind of teaser trailer, coming up in part two, we're, we're talking sleep, which is my favourite topic to talk about. We're talking behaviour, growth mindset, yep. grit, resilience. We've got it all coming up. Got it. But, and um, sleep's a great one because you will be asleep after you talk. To <laughs> fantastic. Well, it's absolutely brilliant speaking to you, Mark. Good and sleep. we look forward to joining you again for part two. We really enjoyed that. Well appreciated. Thanks, bud. So there you have it. There was part one of my interview with Mark Healy. Now it's fascinating, whenever I was planning the interview out and discussing it with Mark, I really thought the three things that we would talk about were sleep, behavior, and and growth mindset. That's what I structured the interview around. But it's it's fascinating, isn't it, how these things can can go in ways you didn't expect, because we needed to lay the foundation of, of kind of Mark's background, where he was coming from. And also, I really wanted to discuss his views just in general of, about cognitive science and cognitive psychology. And then one thing led to another. And before you knew it, an hour and a half had passed by and it's a, it's a Friday. And Mark's got to phone a parent and so on and so forth. So, um, as I said, we decided to put this out as, as, as part one, as a bit of a teaser for, for, for what's coming next. And I think it does lay a, a really kind of solid foundation for for what I know for a fact will be a fascinating uh, part two. But that doesn't mean there's there's not things to reflect on from from this conversation. So I I just want to pick out two key ones. Um, A big one for me was this notion of do one thing at a time to bring about change. I think that is so, 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 so important. Um, As Mark described, that is really, really relevant to school leaders. And by school leaders, I don't just mean head teachers and deputy head teachers and and people in charge of teaching and learning, but also um, departmental leads, um, heads of maths, um, heads of key stage three in maths and so on. Anybody who wants to bring about change, um, the worst way to do it is just to to, to give a load of different things, chuck a load of different things at at, at teachers or even at at students. And the reason that that doesn't work, well, there's two bits. First off, it's just overwhelming. There's just too much to do. And again, if if people are skeptical about it, it's so easy then to opt out because you're just so overwhelmed. But also, and just as importantly, um, you've no way of knowing the impact of any one of those changes. It's like a really bad science experiment. You've changed too many of the variables. You've no idea when the outcome changes or doesn't change what to um, attribute that to. So I think that's incredibly relevant to leaders. And I really like this idea in Mark School that they just take one thing and focus on it for an entire year, even though there's such a temptation to jump on the latest fad or the latest bit of research and so on. One thing and focus deep on it, get it right, reflect on it, have time to implement it, find out what works and what doesn't. And that's also relevant, um, not just to leaders, but individual teachers. So I always say this um, when I'm lucky enough to run workshops or give talks. I will say at the end of it, hopefully you've you've enjoyed today. It was never a guarantee, but hopefully you've enjoyed yourself. Hopefully you've got a few ideas that you're perhaps excited to try, but just pick one. Pick one first and work on that. Make sure you're used to it. Make sure your kids are used to it. Practice it, practice it, rehearse it and so on, and then reflect upon it. What's worked, what what doesn't work? And if because you're just changing one thing, it's much easier to, 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 to manage it from a workload perspective, but 
also get a sense of, of what impact it's having. So individual, perhaps you found this from listening to these podcasts. You come away with it with loads of things to, to think about and try. Just try and pick one. I re- I'm a great believer in this and only move on to the second one once you've got that first one nailed. But it's also relevant, this, this, this notion of do one thing at a time to bring about change. It's also relevant for observing lessons. And this is something that's come up a few times on this show, whether it's Danny Quinn or Tom Frankham or Emma McRae speaking about observations. Um, whenever you are working with, working with teachers, um, just when you're giving feedback um, after a lesson, just pick one thing for them to work on, one thing for, for, for that teacher to, to focus on and, and, and have as, as part of their thing to develop. Um, I, I've made the mistake in the past, I've spoken about this, I've, I've suggested three or four different things, and it's too much, it's too flipping much for people to for people to take in, and, and nothing happens as a result of it. It's so tempting to do so, because you think, oh brilliant, I'm giving them loads of feedback, this is brilliant, but it's too much, it doesn't have an impact, so pick one thing. And I'm going to build on that with, with something that um, I talked about when I interviewed Robert Kaplinsky from, from the US. Um, he had a great thing he said about ob- observing, that, that, that when you observe somebody, think of that one thing that you want them to change and surround it by five things that were really, really, really good. Think super hard about five things, perhaps five things that you, you, you take for granted, that the kids were well behaved, the kids used the right language when answering questions. Pick five things that, that actually were really good about the lesson, and then this one thing that is the key thing to focus on, and that seems to be a good recipe to bring about change. I really like that. Um, second takeaway, um, know your kids. Now, this is such an obvious thing to say, but again, it's sometimes the obvious need saying, certainly for me, because I, I, I didn't do this enough. Um, I didn't know my kids' backgrounds. As I said, and I feel terrible for this, um, I wouldn't read in depth these emails that got sent around about kids' backgrounds and so on and so forth. I would perhaps not be paying as much attention as I should have done in, in whole staff briefings when announcements were being made. And I know that makes me an absolutely terrible person, but there wasn't that this is the, I don't know if this is the right word, but there wasn't that incentive or accountability for me to for me to do it. I knew I could get away with kind of um, zoning out a little bit and so on. But that's so important. I mean, Mark's story, it was hilarious about the, the kid having a wee in the corner, but also so important, right, that Mark wasn't aware of why that was happening. And you can imagine that that could have gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. But that knowing the kid's background, knowing their history, taking the time to do that is just as important as thinking pedagogically about how to convey a concept or, or an idea. So I'm going to make a conscious decision to, to get much, 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 much better at that in future. Anyway, um, I'm just so excited about part two. As I say, sleep's coming, behavior's coming, growth mindset's coming. Um, If in the meantime, you've got any questions for Mark, you want to drop us a tweet or anything like that, I'll do my best to put them in there. But I imagine part two's going to be absolutely jam-packed as well. So all that remains for me to do is once again thank Mark for giving up his time. I I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed his company, as I knew I would. A thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. And of course, thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for tuning in in your thousands. Um, I really hope you enjoy these these interviews and conversations as much as I do. Um, If you want to support the podcast, three easy ways. First off, rate and review wherever you get this podcast from. It makes a huge difference. Uh, Second, spread the word. Pick out an episode. Maybe it's this one with Mark. It could be the one with Daisy. It could be anyone that particularly resonated with you. And tell a colleague about it. Suggest that they, they, they check it out on their drive to work whilst they're 
uh, cutting the grass, washing up, whatever, um, recommend an episode. Um, and if you did want to support the podcast, um, there's no pressure to do this whatsoever, but patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Matt, you can sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. And thank you so much to all the people who've done that. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited about getting Mark back on the show, but also all the wonderful guests that are lined up over the coming weeks and even years. Um, thanks for listening. You take care of yourself and bye for now. <laughs>